Let us pray. God, our Savior, as we hear your word this day, send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher of faith and truth and show us how we are called to live through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today's epistle lesson is from the first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, the first seven verses. Hear these words of scripture. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once upon a time before I was in ordained ministry, I had a career in corporate finance and accounting. And after working for a firm in Minneapolis for a few years, I decided to pursue an MBA full-time, which is also where I happened to meet a certain son of a Presbyterian minister. And one of our required courses was operations management. Now in that course, we looked at operational issues in all kinds of companies, manufacturing, technology, service, you name it. How do you use your resources to get done what you need to get done, to get your goods and services produced and to your customer cost-effectively, efficiently, and on time without compromising quality? I'm seeing a few engineers nod. <laughs> Sometimes the issues had to do with managing inventory, supply chains and logistics, sometimes with manufacturing processes. We talked about throughput and bottlenecks. We learned about just-in-time inventory and continuous improvement. We mapped it out with flowcharts and more. I remember a few specific companies that we considered, but more than anything, the one thing that has stuck with me after all this time is the repeated mantra that our professor Bill said in his delightful southern accent. You have to visualize the process. You have to visualize the process. So one of the things I find helpful when studying a scripture text is to try to visualize what's going on at least as much as is possible across the barriers of time and culture and scholarship. Not to get it perfectly, but to let it begin to do its work of prodding and nudging us forward in our own faith. Today's text begins by saying, pray for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, 
so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Well, to the ears of 21st century American Christians, that sounds pretty benign. Pray for the leaders of our country around around the world that we may lead a quiet, trouble-free, and non-controversial life. Now, don't get me wrong, we should pray for our leaders. It's absolutely a good and faithful thing. It's an important ministry. It's part of our whole tradition of prayer, not just as Presbyterians, but as Christians everywhere. We pray for our leaders because we have this guidance in Scripture. Pray for them, pray for wisdom and guidance. And at first blush, as Eric Barreto wonders, it seems to actually leave unchallenged a hierarchical vision of the world. Actually, it seems to tacitly endorse the status quo of continued power imbalance. But if you visualize yourself living in the late first century world, you become keenly aware that you and your fellow house church members are a small minority. You don't have the influence that third churchers do in Rochester. To believe what you believe, to follow the teachings of Jesus, and to worship the way you do are all very countercultural. And on a daily basis, you are confronted with the fact that the Roman imperial order wields all of the power, and you do not. Every day, the Roman Empire tells you that Caesar is not just emperor, he's actually divine, an emperor to be called Lord, a God to whom you could and should pray. Now visualize all of that. And then we can hear what the letter urges its hearers, urging them to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, not to them. Pray for Caesar and not to him. For there is one God, i.e. not a pantheon of gods, like the Romans at the time thought. And this one God draws a circle of love that is wide enough to include everybody. And that, my friends, is subversive. It oh so subtly thumbs its nose at the Roman Empire. Luke Timothy Johnson says there's an implicit critique in here of the absolute authority of those rulers. And I would also suggest it's doing more. I would suggest that such a prayer employs what Walter Brueggemann calls prophetic imagination. A tradition that goes back to the prophets of old. And when I say prophetic, I don't mean predicting the future. That's not what the biblical prophets did. Instead, prophetic imagination visualizes the world as it should be, as God intends it to be, not as it is. Prophetic imagination recognizes that the dominant narrative of the world is just not enough. The prevailing story that the world tells is not good enough and not true enough 
from God's point of view. Rooted in God's covenant with humans, prophetic imagination generates images of reality that are not rooted in the world in front of us, because in the wide, wide circle of God's love, that is not all that there is. To illustrate, Walter Wink tells the story of Greg Brandon and his Native American friend David at the 2006 Science and Consciousness Convention in Santa Fe. I didn't know there was such a thing. And that was during the worst drought in New Mexico's history. Brandon invited his friend David to walk over to a sacred medicine wheel to pray for rain. David took off his shoes, he closed his eyes, he audibly acknowledged his ancestors as part of his tradition, but he didn't pray out loud for rain. And this puzzled Brandon. David replied, when I closed my eyes, I was experiencing the feeling of mud between my toes because there's so much mud, because there's been so much rain. I smelled the smell of adobe houses when they're wet and felt what it feels like to run with my shirt off through the standing corn that is so high because there has been so much rain. And I gave thanks for the rain that has already fallen. In other words, says Wink, what David did in that drought-stricken land was visualize a world being transformed. And that is praying with prophetic imagination, visualizing the world as it should be, as God intends it to be. Now, it turns out that a few days later, there was indeed rain, lots of it. And I would never, ever draw a direct correlation between a single human prayer and some desired result. It would be presumptuous at best, and most certainly blasphemous. But as people of faith, we have to consider the possibility that such a prayer changes something, if not in God, at least in us. It's true that too often my own prayers are too small. They're not particularly pretty, especially the ones that I pray outside of worship. They are more like a running, disjointed conversation with God throughout the day. And sometimes my language is not very pious. And I'm often concerned with trivial things. But how freeing would it be to stop worrying about what we say in our prayers, because we Presbyterians hate to pray out loud, how freeing it would be to stop worrying about what we say and whether we've got the right words and simply pray by visualizing a world being transformed. To, as Abraham Joshua Heschel put it, to dream in league with God, to envision God's holy visions. What would change in us? Richard Rohr visualizes justice that feels like grace, 
like generosity, like love itself, justice as an almighty and effective love that leaves no one behind or forgotten, not even the so-called unworthy. Justice that feels nothing like grudging demand or obligation or requirement or command or prerequisite for love. Justice that feels like largesse to anyone who knows it. For what it's worth, here's what we might visualize in no particular order and by all means not all-inclusive. A frightened, inconsolable child being held and comforted in Jesus' arms. A stressed and anxious teenager finding the ability to laugh because Jesus tells a silly joke to break the ice and then tells that teenager how valuable she is in God's eyes. We'd envision police stopping young men of color to simply tell them, you're safe with us. We could visualize schools where all children have the same access to opportunities, where no child wanders off unnoticed, where the colors are cheery and giggles fill the hallways. We could imagine the forces of gentrification reversing themselves home by home so everyone can afford them. We could picture the crushing weight of poverty flying off the shoulders of every adult and child without enough resources and migrant farm workers smiling as they receive their paychecks because their wages are just. We could visualize walls everywhere falling down, walls around Bethlehem and Janine, walls of segregation and economic disparity crumbling with the touch of a finger. And then we could see community gardens of inclusion spring up in their place. We could see prison doors being flung open, freeing mere boys to go home and get that second chance that they need. And those same prisons transform solitary confinement into places of restorative justice, reclaiming humanity. We could visualize a planet where glaciers stop shrinking, where nature's wrath becomes a whimper, where even coral reefs come alive. We could imagine people hanging rainbow flags one by one from every single house of worship across America, no matter what denomination or tradition, because people of every gender identity are welcome at them all. We could see captains of industry in conference rooms deciding we don't need more kinds of shampoo or another flavor of Cheerios. We don't need planned product obsolescence to fuel yet more consumerism. And we could see them instead diverting their product development dollars to tackling those little problems like poverty and hunger. We could visualize halls of government where every legislator, every elected official, and every one of their staffers can't wait to work together for the common good. Even where, as Susan Pace Hamill imagines, tax and budget policies are vehicles for God's justice. And we could even visualize a third church stepping forward in faith, 
with a prophetic enough imagination to be the church the 21st century needs. Challenging the dominant narrative of this world, the narrative of cynicism and hopelessness, with the narrative of God's power and grace for all, no matter who you are. That would indeed be countercultural. Christian Ioso and Elizabeth Hinson Hasty write socially conscious prayer today responds to the desire for wholeness that's part of the Spirit's work in every conscience. And such prayer is, to quote one of Brueggemann's own prayers, awed to heaven, rooted in earth. At the threshold with all of God's creatures in heaven and on earth, everyone from rabbits and parrots to angels and seraphim, daily stretched between communion with God and our bodied lives. Awed to heaven, rooted in earth. In our prayers, may we visualize a world being transformed into God's vision to dream in league with God. And in so doing, we may find ourselves transformed as well. Amen.